At OCR, we provide a range of general and vocational qualifications to schools and colleges in the UK. We're committed to supporting a curriculum that helps young people develop an ethical view of the world, enabling them to take social responsibility, understand environmental issues and prepare them for the future. We embed equality, diversity, inclusion and belonging into everything we do, from our products and services to our student assessments and our working environment and culture. We believe that creating a wider, more engaging curriculum improves the teaching experience and delivers assessments that support students to demonstrate their full potential. Search online for OCR People and Planet to discover more. Welcome to this live Geographical Association JogPod. Um, this is the first podcast that we've done live. So it's a, it's a sort of in conversation rather than how we normally do it. So there's no second takes, no pressure there then. And uh, I have with me three guests. So I'd like to welcome Richard Phillips first, who's Professor of Human Geography at Sheffield University. But we also have two guests. And I'm going to ask Richard to introduce the two guests because he's invited them into our conversation. Great. Uh, so Tarek Jazeel, Professor of Human Geography at University College London, uh, someone that shares with me an interest in place and in post-colonialism, and I knew would, would have a lot to say to this conversation. Maddie Starzak, uh, a student graduated a couple of years ago, so an ex-student of the Department of Geography at Sheffield now has done all sorts of interesting things since, including delivering letters and everyday geography. We're going to come back to that theme later, but also working in progressive food growing and distribution now. Thank you. So the plan, well, as far as we've got one anyway, is that uh, Richard and I, Tarek and Maddie are going to chat and for you to chip in as we go. Uh, we'll we'll give you opportunities, and we've got a microphone here so that you can you can add your voice to this experimental podcast. I've checked Richard's profile on Sheff- at Sheffield University, which is what I always do with my guests. Tariq knows this already because we've already done one podcast. And your interests, then, Richard, are, are creativity and curiosity, storytelling, creative writing, innovative fieldwork. There's lots more, actually. There's lots more in that. But it's all in the context of exploring changing places. So what we wanted to do, the context of how we want to look at this today, is to look at place, the way geographers see place, look at creative writing in the context of place. And we want to look at fieldwork techniques that you can take away and use with your A-level students. But actually, some of the techniques you could use even with very young primary school children. So that's the context of the conversation. And it gives us a rich context, I think, for this podcast. But before I start, I'd just like to to give you a flavour of the guests that we've got, the people who are here in conversation. So Richard, I'd be interested to find a bit about your career. What was it that got you interested in geography in the first place? Uh, Let me ask, how many people here are teachers? Good. The, 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 The good news is that what got me into geography was teaching, teachers, primary school teachers who were interested in the where the school um, fields and the grounds. We, we grew plants. I had a little patch where I grew things in primary school. But my secondary school teachers were really amazing. They, they got me really inspired. Looking back at the curriculum, I sometimes wonder why, because I, I think the curriculum's become more exciting over time. But teachers have been my inspiration. Um, but also I wanted to mention another thing. Um, so some of the reading that we discover for ourselves rather than the things that we're told to read can often be particularly inspiring. And there was a book that I read when I was a teenager um, by Richard Maybe, and that's not the Richard Richard Maidlin who appears uh, with Richard and Judy on breakfast <laughs> television, it's Richard Maybe, M-A-B-E-Y. Um, I've loved his writing ever since I was a teenager. His first book that I read was called The Common Ground, and that spoke about change in the countryside it spoke to where I was living, um, where I was living, there was motorways being built, there were housing estates, it felt like nature was being uh, crushed. And Richard Maybe's uh, work spoke to that, illuminated that for me, but also is filled with hope and a love of nature as well. So I think that that first book, and I wanted to mention a book because, because place and writing about place and what I want us to all talk about today, I was interested to know what the other, what the other three on the panel, maybe some people here as well, 
maybe it's a book, maybe it's something else, but but by way of introducing yourself, Maddie, is there something that you, you've read or seen? Mm, I think I would love to say first that my sixth form geography teachers were instrumental in making me pursue geography and they got me into it as a way of geography was the way that I could understand the world and my place in it and what my role would be and coming to university and getting to pursue that meant that I could really hone in on particulars of place that helped me understand my place within that. The book that I read that comes to mind is Edgelands. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but it draws attention to um, spaces that can't be classed as rural and urban, don't fit between that dichotomy, ignored spaces um, like the back of industrial estates and gravel pits and sites of refuse and allotments. And I loved it. I really loved it. Lovely. Well, for me, like both Richard and Maddie, I think it was it was teachers. Actually, it was uh, at school. Geography was the subject, and my teachers were instrumental in this. But geography was the subject that, for me, was incredibly expansive in terms of uh, my my imagination and sense of learning about the world. So it was, it was definitely a kind of uh, something that was inspired. Um, in me at school but then I think when I got to university I did a degree I read for a degree in geography and environmental studies at Sussex University and when I got to university I think geography was the subject where I felt like I could explore my own sense of being a, in somehow kind of diaspora subject so being someone with parents from from South Asia from Sri Lanka actually but born in London, geography felt like a, a sort of natural place where I could explore that kind of stretched spatiality. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that I'd say it's a combination of those things. Actually, I can't remember the book. <laughs> <laughs> Mine wasn't a book. I think that says more about me than it does about Richard and the rest of them. <laughs> the thing that inspired me was my dad was Scottish. We always went to the Highlands for our holidays. We had a caravan every year, and it was the landscape that drew me in. Why is it like it is? What's going on? What's happening? And then going back occasionally to my geography teacher and saying things like, look, I've just seen a meandering river in, in the mountains and that just didn't fit that long profile, which we've just studied. What's going on there then? And Andrew Fox, I'm still in touch with him, believe it or not, brilliant teacher. He, yet again, inspired. So great news for you inspiring teachers inspire lifelong learners of geography Uh, and I think that's one message to take away before we even start talking about place that's really quite exciting for you I think to hear and sometimes there'll be students who won't say anything to you perhaps for for some while might be three or four five six seven eight years and you'll get somebody who says oh my it was great. I'm, I'm, I want to hook back up with you now. I've had two or three on Facebook. God knows how they remember after all this time, because it's hundreds of years since I last talked. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. Um, I don't know if you wanted to ask some people from the audience. I think... Uh, well, let's on the theme of books, I think. Yes. I wonder if anyone has a book that sticks out for you. It might be... When, when I was... John pre-warned this question for me, so I had a little while to think about it. <laughs> uh, so if nothing occurs to you, I fully understand. But does anyone have a book that jumps out at you as something you read? Yes. Um, Hans Rosling, Backfulness. For me, I'm a geography teacher. For me, it's totally switched how I teach the, the theme of development. Mm-hmm. The kind of, you know, lucky us for them outdated worldview, which, you know, in, in his book, Hans himself talks about, you know, CEOs of multinational companies haven't kind of talked up with what the world is actually like today. So so for me, it's just not only updated my subject knowledge, but switched my approach and, and how I deliver that kind of aspect to my students. Lovely. It's a really nice quick read as well. It's, it's not a heavy book. You can it in a couple of days easily. What was the title? Can I just say it for the microphone? Yeah, so Hans Rosling. Hans uh, Rosling. Factfulness. Factfulness. That sounds brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much. One of the things that inspired me quite late on, I have to say, and I'll, sp- I'll explain why perhaps, um, is when I read your work for the RGS on changing places. My university, when I'd gone to university, it was, it was at the height of the, what was called then the quantitative revolution. And the human geography diet that I had was Cristala models, um, tessellating models, Lersch, Weber. We didn't talk about place in the sense of 
the way you talked about place in that in that article. And that, I, I, if you haven't read it, it's on the RGS website. It's called Changing Places. It's a fantastic piece. And it was designed to support teachers with a new A-level spec. When that came out, and we weren't given very much time, were we, no. to, to cope with all of this change. And the idea of what does place mean when you're trying to get it over to A-level students was at the time really very, very tricky. So I thought it was a seminal piece mm, and it, it expressed it with great clarity. So yeah. it'd be useful to just take us through part of that, I think. OK, thank you. So I'm sure that anyone teaching A-level now will be very familiar with what we call the new A-level. But I, I was part of um, the A-level curriculum advisory board um, with Alastair Owens and numerous other people. And what we were charged to do was to bring A-level geography up to date there was some great content already in the curriculum, but I think there was a sense that there was a huge disjuncture between what was going on at school and what was going on at university. And, and if they were a bit more closely aligned, that would be good. But also there's just some really exciting work out there. So it's kind of you to say that what I wrote was seminal. What I saw it as though was more of a sense of looking around to see the most exciting, best work out there and drawing it together. So, um, and, and taking some, we take our inspirations from other people. I'm very interested in places and connecting with the world around me, but there was some, there's some work by people like Doreen Massey, who's spoken at the GA before she sadly died now, but a really inspiring figure. And, um, and Peter Jackson, a colleague at the University of, of Sheffield and, and others too. And their writing, some of the writing that I liked most was the simplest writing about the places around them and the things that they noticed when they were in their shopping streets or in, in the world most close to them. Learning about faraway places is really important as well, but there's some writing which really influential. Doreen Massey wrote a piece on her high road in Kilburn, which is called A Global Sense of Place. And I wanted to share that with teachers that didn't know that. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing out ideas from Doreen Massey and also from Tim Creswell and, and building out that. So it's to share, share ideas. But I was really interested in how Doreen wrote. And, and so that's one thing that, that inspired me. I was trying to write clearly, really. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that read well. But I, I wanted to, to look at how I was interested in how people wrote about place. And, and because of that, what we're going to do today is to spend a bit of the time hearing, reading out some people who've written really well about place. But like Richard, maybe for me, Doreen Messi and a few other people writing about place, but in a way that can raise much broader issues. So Richard maybe was raising environmental issues and questions of nature. Doreen Massey thinking about globalization and inequality. And we're going to hear in a moment from somebody called Dennis Cosgrove from a piece that I heard for the first time, sadly, at his memorial. But I wanted to um, hear a bit from that piece because it does what I've just described, writing very simply about place, but raising broader issues. Uh, Dennis was Tarek's supervisor uh, for a number of years at the beginning of your PhD and uh, very fond of and inspired by Dennis, but Tarek equally and more so. So we'll, we'll talk about that piece in a moment. But I guess I wanted to do that because when the new A-level came out, some teachers and some students were a bit anxious about the idea of uh, a new curriculum. Teachers very stretched, um, often very stressed as well. And a curriculum that seemed quite strange, that seemed to be introducing new ideas about place and ideas about places having meanings, personal and cultural meanings. We tried to support that, we needed to support that, but one of the ways in which I tried to do that was to help teachers teach about local places. And that was, that was one thing that they're charged to do. Where every teacher is teaching about a local place, they can't simply take something from a textbook because everywhere is somewhere different. And so the A-level required people to teach about local places, but also a non-local place. So for the non-local place, it was easier to support that with textbooks. With the local place, it involved pretty much every teacher in every school having to engage with their own local area and learn about that. So I thought, well, let's let's go back to some geographers that have done that for themselves, Doreen Messi and now Dennis Cosgrove, and see how they've done it. Just explore a bit how they did it. Can I put you on the spot then and say, how would you define place? Okay, how do we define place? Well, let, um, here's, a, here's a formulaic definition. At GCSE level, we can think about place as pretty much location. Um, but then building on that, um, engaging with a wider set of questions and, and, and research at, at university level, one definition of place that's been um, offered is the idea of location plus meaning. 
So that that gets us to think about what does what does a, a part of geography mean to the people that live in it, and that's something which is collective. We do we value a place in numeric in, in terms of money, but do we also have associations with that place? Does a place mean something to us? Is it beautiful? Is it puzzling? Is it dangerous? Is it diverse? What are those are those are meanings attached to place. Some of them are collective. Some of them are individual. Doreen Massey also spoke about place. And this is something really challenging, but also as, as, a, as a nexus of flows, flows of money, flows of people, flows of things converging. Um, she spoke about an, an endless uh, series of, of, of particularities, the ways that, that some quite generic forces and, and things would flow and converge in particular parts of the world, particular moments. So that sense of flow, what Doreen Massey really left us with, though, is a challenge as well, of not to think about place as something bounded that we can defend and protect, but as something which is always connected to a world out there, a wider world, people that will come into the place for a while, some will stay forever, things that might come in and pass through again, things that might pass over, but, but to think about place with an open mind and an open spirit. She spoke about a progressive sense of place, and I taught students, in fact, one came to see me recently who did his NEA, on his uh, local area around Rotherham. And he felt really challenged by Dorian Messi to think about his place where he was anxious about change. I spoke about being anxious about change before environmentally, but anxious about change and about the loss of community and the erosion of a former mining community that even after 30 years is still thought of as a former mining community. And for him, the question is, how does he embrace the future with an open openness, but not a defensiveness? But, but one where still the place will still mean something. That's my answer. Mm. Tarek, would you have a different vision? Not really, no. I mean, I, I think meaningful space is one term that, that always springs to mind when I think about place, which is all something the importance of, of meaning, um, location with meaning, I think is the phrase you used. Um, I would also, I don't think places necessarily, that meaning necessarily has to be close to, to us. The place has always had meaning somewhere and somehow, and those meanings can be contested as well uh, and differential. I think also the points that, that Richard's made about the, the, the kind of challenge that Doreen Massey gives us are really, really important points because I think when, when I teach place at, uh, to undergraduates at University College London, one of the, the points of getting them to think about place through Doreen Massey's idea of as uh, the, the constellation of spatial flows and trajectories that come from elsewhere is to say that you, you can never draw lines around place much as we, we want to try. And that seems to be the, uh, the, the natural inclination now is to, is to draw lines around places at, at various scales. Actually, if we think about it, those places are always already made up of those spatial flows that come from either near or far, actually. So that, that mining community that your student uh, is worrying over and talking about. I think those, those older forms of community there are also spatially disparate and have, have come from elsewhere. So I would only really amplify that the kind of things which is already said. And from a different perspective, Maddie. <laughs> it's a huge question. And I think I think Richard and Ted have done really, really well to explain it. But I would add that I am fascinated in the way that I think that, like you touched on, a place is never contains one identity for more than a moment and is in constant evolution and change, depending on um, who is invited into that space, what grows in that space, what that space is used for. And I'm particularly fascinated in like biological successions of spaces. Some plants that grow um, are really good at working in damaged soils and um, and absorbing toxic heavy metals that are there and um, make way like gorse and brambles do. Um, they act as like a nursery and protector for trees to grow. And just like the environment does that and plants do that, we do that, people do that, buildings do that too. When I was at the Geographical Association, I'm not now, I'm retired, mm. I worked on a project funded by Paul Hamlin and it was called Making My Place in the World. And I worked with uh, Dr. Susan Birmingham from Manchester Met University. We worked with schools in Greater Manchester and in the Sheffield Rotherham area. 
and we were looking, we were working with Y9s and Y10s, disaffected students. Well, the aim was for, to engage them within the community to understand how they could be agents of change. And we did various different fieldwork activities, which we'll come to later on, I think. But one of the things that one of the students said to me at the end, which I took away as being a real success for this project, was Darren said to me, he'd be quite a difficult young man all the way through the project, but he said to me, Johnny says, what I've learned is you don't know a place until you've listened to somebody else talking about it. And that had come from us talking to a shopping centre manager who'd said how wonderful the people of Withenshaw were and I was watching his, his mouth drop because he'd been telling me about where the, the stolen car had gone over the front lawn when they took us for a walk around his, his hood and where the fence had been knocked down. To have somebody talking about the place in very positive terms was a real learning experience for him. And we talked about how place, the same place can be experienced differently by different people, but also the same place can be experienced by the same person depending on the time. So he'd said to me, oh, you don't want to come around here at six o'clock or seven o'clock at night. It gets really dangerous. But then he said, yeah, yeah, but you're with me, so you'll be all right. Oh, thanks, Darren. So <laughs> that was that was his learning of place. And it, the, the, the fieldwork is still on the website somewhere, I think, that we did. It's very innovative stuff and largely down to Susan Birmingham. Great stuff. I thought we we will read we will read a little bit because I think we're in interesting words and we've got another reading later. But I, I think I've already in, introduced that there'll be uh, a bit from Dennis Cosgrove, and the, this is the one piece that I mentioned that I heard his daughter reading from at his memorial. But it's one that stuck in my mind. A very simple piece of writing, but it's one that 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 spins out in all sorts of interesting ways. So John's kindly going to read it for us. It's called Geography is Everywhere: Culture and Symbolism in Human Landscapes. And this section is meaning and landscapes. On Saturday mornings, I'm not consciously a geographer. I am, like so many other people of my age and lifestyle, to be found shopping with my family in my local town centre precinct. It's not a very special place, artificially illuminated under the multi-storey car park, containing an entirely predictable collection of chain stores, WH Smith, Topshop, Baxter's, Boots, Safeway and others. You can tell that's a little dated now. Fairly crowded with well-dressed, comfortable family consumers. The same scene could be found almost anywhere in England. Change the names of the stores, and then the scene would be typical of much of Western Europe and North America. Geographers might take an interest in the place because it occupies the peak rent location of the town. They might study the frontage widths or goods on offer as part of a retail study. Or they might assess its impact on the pre-existing urban morphology, but I'm shopping. Then I realise other things are also happening. I'm asked to contribute to a cause I don't approve of. I turn a corner and there's an ageing evangelical Christian distributing tracts. The main open space is occupied by a display of window panels to improve house insulation, or rather, in my opinion, to destroy the visual harmony of my street. Around the concrete base of the precinct's decorative tree, a group of teenagers with vividly coloured Mohican haircuts and studded armbands cast the occasional scornful glance at middle-aged consumers. The precinct then is a highly textured place with multiple layers of meaning, designed for the consumer to be sure, and thus easily amenable to my retail geography study, Nevertheless, its geography stretches way beyond the narrow and restricted perspective. The precinct is a symbolic place where a number of cultures meet and perhaps clash. Even on a Saturday morning, I'm still a geographer. Geography is everywhere. Thank you for that. It's really, really nice to hear that, that one again. So unpretentious, simple writing, but it's one that resonates out. It's one that you've, you've been thinking about, Rick, isn't it? Yeah, well, as you said um, earlier, Richard, uh, Dennis Cosgrove was my, my PhD supervisor, and um, it's, it's, it's always nice to read his work, to re-engage with his work, and, and to hear it read out. And I think for a long time, I, I had an interest in cultural studies, and the reason I wanted to study with Dennis was because he was at the forefront of a, a movement within the discipline which became known as the New Cultural Geography. So it was human geography that was looking towards cultural studies. 
looking towards culture, actually, to engage with culture and the role that culture plays in everyday life and human geography. So it's, it's really nice to hear this piece, Fred. I guess there was a, a few points I wanted to make about it. And one was simply the everydayness of the writing, you know, the, the observations on the everyday, the observations on the ephemeral. He says, I think the very first words are, on Saturday mornings, I'm not consciously a geographer. So he's still a geographer, just not consciously a geographer. And I think it's a really important point to remember this engagement with the ordinary, this engagement with the everyday, observing and noting and thinking about those, those ephemeral forms of everyday life. I think it's really important because often I think we hear about the, um, the value of authoritative knowledge that, that comes from the discipline. That, that teachers should be uh, pushing that in their classes, the kind of value of, of disciplinary knowledge as such. And it's also important to remember that in the kinds of spaces in which we work in geography departments in, in universities across the country and beyond, we're looking at the everyday, we're engaging with the everyday. And Dennis absolutely was. You know, his entry point to being a geographer was uh, an engagement with everyday life. So I think that's the first thing I would say that's really, really important, the importance of the ordinary in that piece of writing. I've already talked about his, his relationship with cultural studies and with cultural theory. And he, 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 in that article, he really sets up this notion of landscape as a, and place as, as human expression, right? landscape as humanistic. Uh, so the idea of landscape and place being a kind of human expression, which I think connects back to some of the things that um, Richard said about location with meaning, place being location with meaning as well. And then the other thing I really like about that article is it's actually methodological. And if you read on in that article, then it makes the point strongly and clearly about the importance of engaging with landscape and place as if it were a text. So he's reading all this cultural studies work. He's reading people like Raymond Williams um, and other cultural studies theorists who are engaging with text. And he's taking those modes of reading text and he's applying them to landscape, to place. And that's really important, I think, because if, what he's urging us to do as geographers is read place, is read the landscape. And that notion of reading, I think, is really important methodologically because we think about it, reading is, um, is an active process. If you're reading a book, if you're reading an article, you're engaging with it, you're inscribing yourself in the text. Um, perhaps a little bit more than, than listening, which kind of you can do a bit more passively. I'm sure musicologists and sociologists would argue with me there, but for the sake of illustration, let's say listening is passive, reading is, is active. It's an active process. And he's encouraging us to read the landscape, to really actively engage with it, which I think is, what, is something we can think about in the context of fieldwork, in the context of engaging with the ordinary and the everyday that, that's all around us. How do you do that actively? And how do you encourage your students uh, to do that actively? And there's one more thing I wanted to say as well, which is perhaps not so much in this, this article, but it's, it's what I would call the, the kind of constitutive elsewheres of those landscapes and places. And we already talked about Doreen Massey's imprint on how we think about place in geography today, this idea that place is, is constituted by these spatial flows that come from elsewhere. But it's also often those things that we can't see in the landscape or in place. Uh, historically, um, we need to do a little bit more excavation to think about how histories of imperialism or colonialism, what happened out there, how it, how it um, shapes places in here. So I already talked about you know, my own experience of, of being a, a diaspora um, subject, growing up as a diaspora subject. And, and, you know, I was a part of the place in which I grew up, yet my family story comes from elsewhere. So, so those constitutive South Asian elsewheres are very much a part of the story of London. So uh, that's just a, a few reflections on why that, that writing resonates with me. As you were talking of writing, I was also thinking of other forms that are expressive to get you thinking about geography. I went to see Standing at the Sky's Edge. I don't know if any of you have. If you're local to Sheffield, it was, it'll, I'm sure it'll come back again. It's Richard Hawley's music and it's about Park Hill Flats and it takes one flat over 
what would it be since the 1960s? So 50 years worth of, of a flat. But the changing nature of the place through drama. And, and it's, it's a fascinating piece. It's a fascinating play. And it's in London at the moment, being very successful down there too. It was a sellout while I was here. But I, I did some work with students in Park Hill Flats. And their perception of that place was very different from the reality because it's changed over, over time, but the, their perception had lagged. So we, we went into the centre. It's it, There's a garden in the middle. Around the, you've, you've seen, if you've come into Sheffield, you don't know which ones I mean. It's the huge flats that sit above the, the station, which is the largest listed building in Europe and uh, is a brutalist um, architecture. And the, the students were saying to me, oh, we'll, get, we'll get stabbed. We don't want to go in there. And we went and we sat and it was tranquil. And I, I said to them, look, you imagine your mum's living over there and your granny's in that bit. And there's no cars. Shut your eyes, sit and listen to the, the wind in the trees and think about what perception of that place you had before you came, which was of lawlessness and televisions being thrown off balconies and being stabbed. And there's a bloke coming along with two dogs. And I said to him, I'm going to, just go and ask him what his experience is like here. And they said, oh, don't, don't. We had groups of about six of them. I said, no, we'll invite him over. And he came over and he was really interested. He said, what are you doing? So I told him what, what was going on. He, he said where he lived and what his experience had been over time. And then we ended up going into a flat of somebody else. This was all walking field work, really. And uh, this chap said, we should have gone into another into another flat, but it had been broken into. The, the, the local councillor was taking us round. So this chap said, well, come and have a look at my flat. And we went in. And one of the things he said was, uh, when Urban Splash had finished and my flat's been gentrified, I won't be able to go back in again because I won't be able to afford the rent. And that got the, the students really quite angry about the, the people who are being dispossessed by this gentrification, if you like. Changing place, people experience place. And that, we're not ready yet to do fieldwork, but that's leading us into looking at how students ex learn to experience places through, through going to local places like that and talking to local people. Yeah, thank you. I think another thing I want to pick up on, um, as Tarek was talking about, it's good to observe what's there but often it's also really important to read between the lines of a landscape, think what's not there or what's been erased or concealed. So I think that's a really good point. How do we do that um, is a really good methodological question. But there's another question, which is one that I've also thought about is how do we notice things which are there, but which we've been trained not to notice and which our eyes will always look away from, whether it's through routine or because we think they're not important. I think Cosgrove, but also Dorian Massey before, was saying, you didn't think these things were important, but we can uh, look at them with fresh eyes and find something in them, find some meaning in them. So one writer that I've been inspired by, Georges Perec, French writer who, uh, mainly from the 70s and, and 80s, He's somebody who's spent a lot of his time in treading, treading the, um, the, the streets and, and sitting in the cafes of, of a small area of Paris. And he wrote uh, one, one well-known piece called An Attempt to Exhaust a Place in Paris, where he sits in a square and he says, what do you notice? And this is giving himself instructions. Um, yes, Place Saint-Sulpice. So there's a fountain, there's, a, there's a, a impressive, some monumental buildings. He says, now... Don't look at that, look away, notice everything else. So he turns his attention to the pigeons flying around the square, the details of them flying around the square. He turns his attention to what people are carrying in their hands, to the tourists rather than what the tourists are taking pictures of. So Perrick opens up, and, and so um, one of the books that we're speaking from today is George Perrick's Geographies. Like a lot of the work that I've done, it's collaborative work in the sense that some of it's by me, some of it's also about engaging with other with other people, encouraging other people to write and writing with them. Um, some of my research has been around writing workshops and creating workshops in which people have written stories, and uh, and and that's some, something we can talk about as well. But one person who engaged with this project, and coming back to Maddie's previous role as a postie. 
um, was a postman in Huddersfield called Kevin Boniface, who I'm very fond of, interested in as well, because he started a postal round after an art degree way back in the 80s, and it did his head in. It was routine work. It was a horrible working environment. He decided, though, to, um, to keep a diary of his round to write about um, the small things that we don't notice and don't think are important. And his diary becomes, it, it takes some forms that are inspired by Georges Perec, but inspired by other people too. Um, he writes lists of rubbish on the ground. He writes, he writes in, in, a, in a form which is very simply poetic, seemingly simply poetic. Maddie loves his, his work as well. She's kindly said she'd read a little bit from Kevin. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of his diary entries, um, which you can find in George Perrick's geography's book. The date is the 28th of April, 2016, and the location is Homeburg in Huddersfield. In Homeburg, where the streets are lined with cars and enormous laurel hedges, there are ducks in the car park, dippers in the river, and men in Breton caps. I notice attached to the ticket machine blows off in a squall as I approach. I ask the woman in the purple anorak whether she knows what it said. She tells me it was about paying for your parking with your phone. She says she doesn't know about me, that she's not going to be giving them access to her phone among the bank details. <laughs> the cherry trees are in blossom. The young women in wind cheaters and fluorescent trainers are running three abreast in the road. Bamford's postcards building is still being derelict and there's a big hole where John Gill's garage was too. The line of yuccas next to the post office has gone. Outside the public toilets, there are pansies in pots, a defibrillator, a needle bin, a stone memorial to the 81 who died in the flood of 1852. I carry on past the gray ponytailed man in the Breton cap, past the Hivers builders with their white paper bag sandwiches at 10.15 a.m., past the suit of armor on display outside Lionheart Boutique, past another man in the Breton cap, past the painted purple charity shop filled with women in purple anoraks, past the navy blue railings with gold tips outside the solicitor's office, past another man in a steel toed cap boots who is carrying white paper bags full of sandwiches, past another man in a Breton cap, past the shop selling nautical gilets, photos of smiling salt and pepper beard man modelling all the colourways, past another man in a Breton cap, past the cow in the trailer at the traffic lights, past the shop selling a clique felt owls, past the woman with no socks and ballet pumps who was saying it's sad that the cat has died, past the ironmonger's shop where the man in the boiler suit is asking for a lock for his gate, nothing too fancy mind, up the Aubrietta hill, past the vertiginous hard standings for high altitude asteroids, past the steep terrace with the model boat and UPVC window, past another builder eating a sandwich from a white paper bag, past another man in a Breton cap, past the hipster with the big ginger beard and the sunglasses hooked over the V-neck of his fair isle sweater, past the elderly couple on the bench who are eating a sausage roll from a white paper bag, past anoraks with hooded stuffed collars, baggy corduroy and twill, past Clark's nature originals and walking boot trainer hybrids, past a black pea coat and man bag, two long jeans and a pair of brown chiseled toes, past reactor-like lenses and black slip-ons with the slightest heel, like a brogue but with a sporty twist, past gold rim specs and a long straight bob, asymmetrical cardigans, leggings and a vest top, calf-length boots with the cuffs turned down, puffer coats and parkas with tight jeans, and on into the park with the unusual arrangement of daffodils, where Lauren loves shame and nothing much has changed. <laughs> That's lovely. Mm. I hope you enjoyed that. I think there's a portrait of a place there, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. If ever it was a crime and the police wanted a witness, he'd be the one, <laughs> wouldn't it, to go to? Blimey, That's pretty amazing. What interests me then is now how you turn that, which is aspiring writing how do you turn that into into field work and what would we do with our field works with our students I, I pinched a quote and I think I think it's your quote Richard field work can bring excitement and enchantment independence and responsibility to learning experiences and cultivate a sense of wonder and adventure which extend beyond education back into everyday life 
Now, as an A-level teacher, I'm sitting in the audience now and I'm thinking, I want to go away with some things that I can try with my students and, and excite them with perhaps new different ways of, of thinking about field work. So I'm going to pass it to you because you're the experts. No pressure there. Just to um, signal where we, this is A-level, but we, we come back because I think one, one thing that has run through reading different readings of place is that it's great to read Dennis Cosgrove. Um, he's died. New things are happening. It's great to read Kevin. He's brilliant. But then what do we do with it? So I think that's a very good question. But we will hear from, from Maddie again from what some of the things that she's done with this. Mm. I think that the lesson is, uh, for me, is part of this work is about, is about finding threads of inspiration. It's about encouraging other people to do things they didn't know they could do in ways they didn't know they could do them. So each of the writers that we've heard from has done that. So there is, a, there is a scope for what might people do next. And that's, what, that's one of the wonderful things about teaching. And I absolutely believe that can happen at every level of education. So we don't always need to know exactly, but come back to the student in the project in, in the ex-mining community. His NEA, I mean, we have a word limit on dissertations of 10,000 words, but this thing was about 40,000 words. And he had crammed everything in, but and it was astonishing to me. Maybe I can hear from you teachers about, about the, the, the ways these things are defined. But within that, there was an awful lot of exploration of ordinary places. And there was an awful lot of coming at things like an essay from every different possible angle. So I, I feel that, see what inspiration people could take. This isn't a formula, I don't think, though, for someone to say, I will do exactly what this person's done already, mm -hmm. because that, that would lose some of its creative spirit. Can I just come in and say one thing in response to this thread? Because and that's a, it's a beautiful um, reading. Uh, it's really nice to hear it read out as well. One of the things that strikes me about it is it's a kind of mapping actually, and, and part of this work, for me at least, when, we, when I do fieldwork with students, is about empowering students to bring places into representation. And, and what you just read out, for me, is, is, is a kind of mapping of place that is richly textured in ways that a, a two-dimensional cartographic representation can't necessarily do. And if we think about how we get to know places, you know, if you're going somewhere on holiday or uh, we're visiting a new place, we might pick up a guidebook, we might read a novel that's written about that place. So part of this work, for me at least, is about that, that process of empowering students to bring places into representation uh, on terms that they think uh, convey that, that, that the place is meaning. Mm. one way I would respond to it. And it's not, it's not the typical way that we were learned to map out places in school either. It's it's the story of how someone's cuff boots and parker jacket and jeans tell the story of what Holmesworth was like in 2016 better than um, the description of the weather and the, build, the exact building that he was outside of. Would it be right now to to ask us that to ask you to do the second piece that you're going to talk about? Yeah, of course. Are you happy to do that? Yeah. yeah sure. Okay, so can I just introduce this as, as well because. Maddie graduated a couple of years ago. We had a field trip. It was in the middle of um, one COVID lockdown after another. So it was particularly lovely that we could do a field trip. Mm -hmm. We relocated it to Parkwood Springs and other parts of, of Sheffield. That's, a, that's a, a place that will come to life as Maddie talks about it in a moment. But um, so it was it was field where we've been reading uh, work like like what we just read out, uh, Kevin Boniface's writing, and um, we've been exploring different ways of exploring geographies. So it was a methodological module called Urban Exploration. Mm -hmm. Everyone did different different things, and Maddie, I'm going to read from from her piece, which I really loved. Sometimes when you mark a piece of work, it gets filed away, um, and that's the last of it. But there's a few pieces of work from that trip which which I which I've remembered since, and this is one of them. So I'm really glad you can come back and read it for us. I hope it displays for you how paying attention to the mundane and the and the little details can bring out geographies that are more expansive and and push further. Which is, I think, what you were referring to earlier when you were talking about the importance of noticing how spaces here are shaped by imperialism and colonialism. So this is um, an essay I wrote, it's called Finding Weeds Instead of Keys, Legacies of Litter. 
Um, the story begins with me losing my keys for the third time in two weeks. I properly lost them this time. They weren't hiding under the bed, in my jacket pocket, or in the fruit bowl in the kitchen. They weren't down the crack in the sofa, and my housemate hadn't borrowed them. They were properly lost, I was certain, because I'd left the house with them and come back without. The sentimentality of the key ring I lost alongside the keys, paired with the shame of returning to the key cutters, um, impelled me to retrace my steps the following day. Spoiler, I didn't find them, but what I did find, I believe, is worth some attention. Between the cracks on the pavement and the verges of the road, I found a whole array of lost and discarded bits and bobs, each with its own reason for being found where it was, and each without reason enough to be permitted to remain. As I searched among the urban detritus, I found myself transfixed by the peculiarity of each thing, imagining its previous use, its history prior to its flippant disposal. Most exciting to me was the array of vegetable trash sprouting through the littered verges. I'd never contemplated the literal material make makeup of the ground on which I walk, and wondered if within these sidestep sites of refuse there contained an overlooked insight to our material culture, or what we might prefer to keep out of mind. So this is an ode to what is lost and found, as I attempt to draw attention to the litter that we leave behind in order to reveal what they will in our mundanity or even abjectness about the traces of ourselves. The phenomenon of paying attention to the mundane all day every day as that which is habitual, repeated, and eventually taken for granted is not in fact new, but has been receiving increased attention since social science's cultural turn in the 70s. This cultural turn sought to uproot human cognition from, and subjectivity from its Cartesian headstone and reorientate our attentiveness to its visceral sensitivities between our bodies, the environment, and all other earthly matter. The ordinary, habitual, and previously thought of as banal aspects of society now seem to be at the very forefront of social science research because they offer a microcosmic reflection of social, cultural, and aesthetic significance. So how to depict the urban detritus I came across? With my lens focused in search of my keys, I was able to distinguish between the many shards of objects on the ground akin to what I might have experienced during a treasure hunt as a child, I felt a sense of playfulness between myself and the curbside. This sense of playfulness, contrary to most definitions that are either with or without purpose, arose in purpose's breakdown as my hope in finding my keys was evidently in vain. So as a remedy to not finding what I sought, I decided to chronologically catalog what I came across within a list, an exercise detailing what my eye was drawn to as I retraced my steps the following day. And here's what I found on the ground. A bright red elastic band, leaves that had fallen from the trees, cigarette stubs that were scrunched, dandelions, a disposable mask, a Fanta bottle, an isolate stick, a Budlier tree, a Costa coffee cup, a crushed can of Coke, a CD case, tumbling bricks, burdock, an empty packet of crisp, salt and vinegar walkers crisps, and a marble. Overwhelmingly, my list comprised of single-use containers for food and drink, which once consumed are rendered obsolete. Despite their brief usage, the durability of their plastic or metal materiality forms a perpetual protest to the flippant and fast-evolving material culture we have come to know. The robustness of synthetic polymers ought to be considered a fatal flaw against the fragility of objecthood. The organic world might not be preserved so neatly, however, it sure puts up a fight. Also growing out of the urban dust between the road and the pavement exist vegetable gorillas combating the dereliction of the industrial age, one concrete slab at a time. These vagabond plants erupt through tarmac, cling to brick walls, and flourish between the cracks in the pavement, becoming vegetable trash by association of the company with which they grow. The most common definition of a weed is a plant out of place. Michael Landy is an artist known for his attentive focus and concern for showing the marginalized and overlooked Following his seminal work, Breakdown, in which he destroyed every possession that he owned, Landy turned his attention to weeds in a series of meticulous botanical etchings titled Nourishment. What it seems most inspiring about outlaw plants is their stubborn perseverance. They stand with the plastic shards littering road verges and faltering against the test of time, and a permanent reminder of the material makeup left in modernity's pursuit. But my keys. Um, in case you've forgotten, I didn't find them, which was okay. The key only cost four times for a place, but the key ring I felt was irreplaceable. The key ring could only be described as a rusty circle, 
about this big, um, that on one side had a solid loop just big enough to loop through a chain, and on the other, a piece of gold wire wrapped around its arc. It had been given to me by an old friend after I'd stumbled upon it in his garden and remarked on its obscurity. It looked so far from something that had once had a use that had been mined, designed, and molded for a purpose. So I was keen to know what he remembered about it, to which he told me nothing, except that he'd found it once too and admired its ambiguity. He wrapped it up very carefully in tissue paper as a gift and attached to it a note that read, to Maddie, who sees the beauty in everything, and and sellotaped underneath as a strand of gold wire to which he'd written, wrap this around your rusty heart. He turned it into a necklace, which I'd only ever admired around my neck in the mirror and never outside of the house. After all, it was a piece of scrap metal, but scrap that I adored because it embodied the loving words of my friend. After sitting in a drawer for years, I decided to loop the rusty circle to my keys in a bid to give it some private place and make sure I wouldn't lose my keys again. Um, Surely I would be able to keep hold of something so precious. However, keys in their nature have a habit akin to socks, scissors and lighters of disappearing, in my experience anyway. I like to imagine that my keys found their way out of my pocket and onto the pavement, where they may have been found by someone equally as intrigued by the rusty circle wrapped in gold. Maybe their sparkle called to Magpie's Eye, who fetched them to adorn their nest with. One day they might be found in an archaeological dig, long after Sheffield has turned to dust, by aliens from a distant galaxy, who will ponder over their use and aesthetic, and place them in a museum next to tin cans, hair grips, and other metals that will surely outlast our existence. Maybe they'll find them in a state akin to my rusty circle, no longer recognisable as an object of use that was once designed and built with clear purpose, such as to open doors, carry beams, or tie hair back with. All things, after all, can only be brief deposits of ourselves, and it's no wonder they don't survive the thrust of social trajectory that sends them hurtling back towards the curb. That's wonderful. It reminded me in part of uh, Jane Whittle's work with primary school children called Journey Sticks, and they walk and collect things on their sticks but they see they look up they look down they look around Mm -hmm. and they record and they see the beauty in things that Mm -hmm. would otherwise not be seen as beautiful and that's Mm -hmm. something that she does with i think Mm y4s we were a little late to start and we're on time to finish so i think if you're okay to stay for a little bit longer we'll take take some questions if there are if there are any and and, and if any if any of you three want to sum up with anything that uh, i i haven't covered i like the way we started with taking inspiration from teachers and and then ending up by taking inspiration from people we have taught that's a nice that's that's what this is all about isn't it does anyone have any any burning questions that's usually a sign that you three have been so good <laughs> that so uh, you've answered everyone's questions as we've gone Thank you very much for joining me in this uh, Job Pod podcast. It's been fascinating listening to you three. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Thank you very much for coming. And we'll see you around the conference. <laughs>